This week in the function room, all the pieces matter. The mats of puzzles. My guest is Rob Eastaway, author of Head Scratchers, a compendium of puzzles from New Scientist magazine. I talked to Rob about puzzles, about him coming to Ireland for Maths Week next week, and also the maths, or some of the maths, of rugby and the Rugby World Cup. Rob Eastaway, welcome to the Function Room. In fact, welcome back to the Function Room. You are our first returning guest. Are you honoured? You look honoured. I'm feeling honoured. I'm glad I look honoured, because that's how I'm feeling. You're back for all sorts of reasons. But first of all, you're back for Maths Week because you're coming to Ireland next week for Maths Week. You'll be giving talks to schools about maths. Do you like talking to school children about maths? I love it. I I, I spend a lot of time going into schools, talking to all age groups about the fun side of maths, really. And, uh, you know, so doubly, I I love doing it and I love going to Ireland. I have a brother who lives in Ireland, so... Uh, I've got every reason to want to come to Ireland and talk to to young people and so just just infuse them, I hope, in some exciting bits of maths they've not really thought about before. And is talking to school kids about maths, is it different to talking to adults? Is there anything about their questions, their attitudes? Do they carry less baggage into the chat about it? Um, whereas obviously adults, we kind of have an experience of mathematics for the full run of school. Is What's different? Well, by the time they get to 13 or 14, I think most uh, most children becoming young adults uh, are beginning, have already begun to form an impression of what they think of the, about maths pretty strongly. And therefore, when you walk into a room with the prospect, this is going to be a maths talk, there's not necessarily universal delight on their faces um, as they wonder, you know, what's what's going to happen. So, so I've learned over the years, you know, things that are more likely to get uh, kids engaged and things that will put them off um, and so in that respect I'm always my materials always evolving um, but I know I mean, one, of the, one of the things I'll be doing certainly at, at least at one of my talks in Cork um, I've got a, a, a talk about uh, the maths of games that involve money and when I at the start of a talk say and later on I'll be giving you a chance to win I'll hold up 20 euros you know th- that that's how to make an audience of 14 year olds go electrically excited very quickly um but hopefully then en route it's not exactly a bribe because they end up you know uh, spoiler alert normally not winning any of it um but, uh, but nonetheless the prospect and the prospect that maths could be related to money is a is a very strong motivator for for most people actually so that 20 euro is kind of like Warren Buffett's legendary $100 that he never spent. It's sort of safely tucked away in a box and uh, you haven't been you haven't been done so far. It's, it's not guaranteed. I mean, the great thing is there is some jeopardy. I could lose it, but the odds are massively, massively in my favour due to human psychology uh, as much as maths. So you haven't rigged the game. Uh, this is all down to human behaviour. People are playing themselves, to quote the meme. Yeah, exactly. It's a part of maths called game game theory, which is where maths meets psychology, and it is one of my favourite aspects of maths. Actually, when it 
human behaviour is, is all part of it. So this is stuff like the prisoner's dilemma and that kind of thing where there's kind of psychology involved with the actual maths of it is quite simple. Is that right? Yes, that, 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 the maths is simple. I mean, this is a, a slightly different game um, that I play with them, but the maths is fairly straightforward. But getting your head around what the implications are of different decisions, that that's, you know, but that's good because most real life, real world maths is not that hard in, in, you know, in terms of where it would fit on the curriculum. But the concepts behind it are quite stretching. And, uh, and so, you know, that's a good side of maths to expose people to. Actually, that's kind of bringing us around to some something else in your work, uh, your book about puzzles. Um, I always find when the maths is kind of supposed to be easy, but the bit is the lateral thinking, the getting your head around it. I I find that really hard. Um, maybe I'm overthinking it. Um, actually, let's let's talk about the book first. Actually, before we get around to my new neuroses. <laughs> Yeah, so uh, a book called Head Scratchers, and it's a compilation of puzzles from the magazine New Scientist, and uh, which I've been sort of curator of for the last five years. So my colleague Brian and I have put together our favourite 70 puzzles from ones that are more straightforward to ones that are really very head scratching. But, um, but the lovely thing about puzzles can be that they bring out the creative side of problem solving and they're things that you can do with someone else like the first 10 puzzles in here we call pub puzzles because they're just the kind of thing that you can actually sit around with friends having a go at there's a there's one of those matchstick puzzles for example that are great for a, a table in a pub but also you know ones which involve moving bits of paper around and so on um but yeah i mean we all you know, I, I probably get stuck with most puzzles when I first see them too. And there's nothing worse than doing it in front of someone else if you feel that they're going to be better than you. You know, that's how to make your brain freeze is if a fear of, oh my God, I can't do it. Um, but um, but the great thing about a lot of puzzles is, well, the way to begin solving it is to have a go. Just, just what's my first impression? Does that work? No, it doesn't work. Oh, but actually that makes me think this could work. And that's great sort of problem solving skill in life really to say well you know problems are always a difficult to start with that's why they're a problem but you've got to start somewhere so have a go and if it goes wrong you often learn something from it going wrong um but you know you hope with a puzzle there's a bit more than that that it's actually fun there's some fun aspect of either you know discovering a shortcut or just a laugh when you see the solution which was unexpected um and you know I, often for me a puzzle. I can't do puzzles, and often, and you know, I turn to the back, and it's discovering the solution, and ah, that's how it works, and here's the related thoughts behind it. That's often as fun as doing the puzzle, as far as I'm concerned. Puzzling, I presume, is an old activity, is it? It goes back a while. Uh, people have been setting puzzles, uh, trying to catch each other out for going back centuries, have they? Absolutely. It goes back to, I think, Mesopotamia, you know, Babylonians and, and, and you know, the, the, um, the Egyptians. There are, there are examples of maths uh, problems being solved way back thousands of years. It's like as soon as uh, humans had learned how to, to deal with numbers and think rationally, puzzles are just a part of of what we are, we like testing ourselves. It's, it's a way of rehearsing the skills we need in life, I guess. So, and, and there are puzzles that, that are quite ancient that 
that still are fascinating today. And, you know, there was another massive peak period of, of puzzle setting a bit more modern times in the late 1800s, early 1900s. And there are many, again, classic puzzles that we use today that, that go back to that time. So uh, so it's great. It's nice to sort of go back in history with puzzles and maybe give them a new context, a modern context, uh, but it's the same underlying puzzle underneath. And do puzzles reflect the time? Like, can you guess from the makeup of a puzzle what's preoccupying people at the time, what the kind of group psychology is at that stage? Yeah. Well, I think, hmm. Yeah, I don't... I, it's, one thing I would say, there's good puzzles and bad puzzles. And I think that a good puzzle has at least one of three things. Either it's something elegant about it being stated, you know, something like a Sudoku even. It's very simple to... to you can tell exactly what to do as soon as you look at it. So it, it's it's aesthetically pleasing and nice, and we like things that are nice. But then the solving process, um, it's great if there's an aha moment. It's not just following... Uh, it's not just following uh, blindly uh, some some set of rules you've been given. You actually got to think a bit differently and discover. And so uh, there's that element. And then a twist, a surprise, something that makes you smile as well. So uh, and and I like to sum these up with three words, which is ah, aha, and ha ha. So you keep adding a letter. But if it hasn't got one of those three elements, to me, it's not really a puzzle. It's just a routine maths question or logic problem or whatever. So. So and and in that respect, of course, the humor side and everything else. Well, that is a very much a psychological. You know, why do we laugh? We laugh at surprises. We weren't we weren't expecting it. People like things like that. They're reasonably democratic, are they? Puzzles like they don't necessarily have a stipulation that you must know a certain level, or certainly not all of them do. A certain level of school maths, like they reward different types of brains do they like you don't need necessarily to have algebra for all the puzzles well that that's fair enough i'd say in that respect yeah we we would never in our new scientist column we would we would never have something that requires you to have a higher level of math pretty much because that's unfair uh, although in the end you know there is no doubt some people are better at puzzles than others not everyone loves a puzzle and a lot of people find them quite scary intimidating frustrating if you can't solve them so you know anyone can have a go but of course it, it is uh, going to be down to the individuals as to whether they whether they personally enjoy them or not but it's nice to have some puzzles that are that anyone can have a go at have a nice low threshold everyone can have a go at there's one the very first one in the book which is a bit hard to describe but it's um uh it certainly i can't really give you the the details of it but it just requires you with two columns of numbers to move one of the pieces of paper with a number on it um, and make the two columns add to the same total. Well, anyone can move a bit of paper. It's where you move the bit of paper to that becomes the challenge. So I like that as a puzzle that a five-year-old could have a go at just as much as a, you know, a PhD mathematician from Trinity Dublin. Yeah, as you mentioned that puzzle, uh, that was one of the puzzles I spotted in the book because it was available in the uh, free preview uh, in the peek inside bit on Amazon. And and I found with that that I was trying to solve it by looking at it and trying to work it out in my head. Whereas maybe somebody who physically like writes it down, moves pieces of paper around, jumps in and practically has a go 
is just batter at it. I froze. I was trying to imagine moving things. And I wonder, is there something about puzzles where the person who is too thinky, namely me, and fancies themselves as a bit of a cerebral person is actually, they overthink it. They are, uh, they hamper themselves. Whereas somebody who just sees a problem and says, right, I'll literally do what the problem says. Cut out the piece of paper, move it around. They get to it quicker. Would that be right? It, it is, it is. And, and that particular puzzle, when I showed it to my daughter when she was about 13, she, um, you know, I put some bits of paper on on the table for her and she picked one up and put it somewhere, uh, not really knowing what she was doing and came up with a solution that was not the one that I'd originally had in mind. But, it, you know, it was the physical act of picking it up uh, and doing something that led to a solution. I think if she'd sat and stared at it, uh, she may never have thought of that. So, yes, hands on, have a go, actually does make a difference and you can overthink it. I remember a friend of mine solving a sim or failing to solve a similar puzzle, which was a matchstick one. Um, and he, he said, I want to work it out in my head. And he couldn't, but he should have picked up one of the matches. It would have made a huge difference. And just for the benefit of listeners trying to picture this, this is the first puzzle in the book Head Scratchers, the New Scientist pub puzzle book. And the numbers one to nine are written on cards in two columns, one, two, three, seven and eight are in the left-hand column, four, five, six and nine are in the right-hand column. The left-hand column adds to 21. The right-hand column adds to 24. The challenge is to move just one card so that the two columns add to the same total. And I couldn't do it in my head. Maybe I'll just actually cut them out and move them around now. Uh, the point about all of this is that I like the way, in some ways, the discomfort in that puzzles force your brain maybe to think in a physical way, maybe sometimes in a three-dimensional way that maybe we've compressed or restricted how we view things based on school maths or the way we work or the way we interpret the world around us normally. Um, puzzles maybe just literally sometimes give us the chance to stretch our brain in that extra dimension. And that might be good for the brain, is it? It is. And anything that gets us out of our sort of routine way of thinking and, uh, you know, in a way, it's a good antidote to a lot of the way we're taught stuff by a set of rules. Puzzles are often about breaking rules or challenging or thinking differently, which are really good and good for the brain. And they always say, you know, whatever the puzzle you're trying to solve, you know, find one that's your level, your style of thing. It could be, um, you know, uh, wordle or, or or whatever but it's good exercise for the brain and it keeps you younger and it's it's you know good for mental health so these are these are generally good things to do moving from puzzle to another area which it's important to strike the balance between rigid fixation on on the pattern the the process and then a flash of genius, flash of mercurial talent, etc, etc. Sport, and in particular, the Rugby World Cup, which is going on at the moment uh, with differing fortunes for various teams on either side of the Irish Sea. We won't mention that too much. Is uh, rugby a, a sport where you can see maths apply, where there's analysis, where statistics come into it? What What's your feeling on it? Of course, the rugby point system is quirky and quite nice. And, you know, whenever you're trailing by 
five points, you think, well, okay, what we're going to need is a try here. A penalty won't be enough. So there's lots of stuff just around the point structure uh, in rugby. I'm sure the analysts do do lots of measurement of, uh, well, I know they do tackles covered and how what proportion of the time you spend in the opposition half and the, all those stats. But it's probably a rather less statistical sport than than many are. Um, and of course, its rules are almost impenetrable. I love rugby. I've been watching it since I was a kid. But ask me to spot why a penalty was given uh, unless it's blatant. I just, you know, I just trust the ref to say he's just seen something very arcane. Um, but I mean, there's there's mathematical tactics in it. You know, go back a couple of World Cups when England were trailing to Wales and there was a little bit of game theory actually as to do we take a kick now to draw or do we go for the try? It was like a a stick or twist thing and the, the captain, well, he chose to go for the try and England lost and actually I did some analysis afterwards so that in, in the cold light today, that was a bad decision. The odds were against, you know, it was it was a worse net result you'd get. So those kind of decisions are being made. And, and so I like that aspect of rugby, the what tactics should we adopt here? Um, and we can see it throughout the World Cup, yeah. I hadn't actually thought of it like that. That's interesting. So there's a different level of return and a different risk associated with the various options, whether you go for a penalty or go for a try. And I suppose that does give you that game theory. Yeah, I hadn't thought of it like that. Exactly. We saw it with Fiji in one of the earlier matches where they just needed to not lose by more than seven points. And they kept not taking a kick for a guaranteed three points and saying, let's risk it and go for a try. And everyone screaming at their telly saying, just take the points if they wanted Fiji to win. Um, so, um, so yes, so that tactical thing and watching it in real time is a very special and nice thing about rugby. There's also a really quirky thing that I discovered a few years ago about, uh, so when you scored a try, you can then, you know, take the conversion from any point along the line where the try was scored, you know, just parallel to the touchline. So you, you could, you could take the kick really close to the posts, but normally a kicker will go a bit further back for the obvious reason. If, if you kick it right on the try line, there's no, no gap between the posts. So there's nothing to hit it through. But of course, if you take it too far back, then not only is it long distance, but the posts are also very close together. So, uh, so you can imagine the angle between the posts is zero if you're too close and it's zero if you're too far back. There must be a sweet spot where the angle between the posts is the biggest. And it turns out there's a bit of school geometry, a circle theorem that tells you where to place the ball, which is, if you imagine the line along which you can place the ball for the conversion, um, Think of that that straight line touching the circle that would pass through the two goalposts. So if you could draw a circle that goes through the two goalposts and touches this line, that line becomes the tangent. The point at which the, um, the, the line touches the circle is the point you should take the kick from. Very hard to picture that, but that does turn out to be the, the, the maximum angle. And the great thing is, um, uh, a few years ago, um, I was doing a rugby and maths event and there was a, a, as a guest, there was a guy called Paul Grayson, a former kicker for number 15 for England. A great, great, not, not as great as Johnny Wilkinson, but nearly up there. And I showed him this, you know, a diagram and said, well, where would you place the ball 
without showing him the circle and the line. And he said, well, I'd, I'd, for taking a kick, I'd place it here. And it turned out he was within, you know, uh, less than a metre of where the math said he should have placed it. So it was like his intuition was telling him where to place the ball. Uh, and it was nice that math turned out to be right. Not that he's ever considered actively the maths behind where to place the ball, but sometimes our intuition is mathematical, as it was in that case. And of course, the nearer you are to the posts, the angle changes as well. So there's just an infinite series of lines parallel to the touchline with all the various associated circles. Yeah, I'm going to look at the pitch completely differently now. And of course, the easiest kicks are the ones in front of the posts uh, and the hardest one is right on the touchline. But um, uh, these days, they'll tell you your odds of getting in as well. So, yeah. But then, of course, the easiest kick right in front of the post becomes laden with expectation and expectation. Maybe the maths goes out the window for that. I don't know what the circle is for bottling it or the pressure to do the seemingly very easy. Um, you won't see those stats, I presume, down in the bottom right hand corner in the in the probability section. Uh, just just springs an odd one on you or a different one on you. Another thing that I'm interested in, maybe is it a little bit of maths, is the line out call. So you've got the hooker who is trying to keep a secret. Uh, from the rest from the opposition and presumably they have all these calls encoded in such a way that the other team doesn't know what is uh, going on yeah in case you're wondering that's my eldest daughter just singing some random song in the background or else making an obscure line out call and I'll never know what the dart will be but yeah there's it's you'd love to know what the codes are, wouldn't you? They must be highly prized pieces of information. I'd love to know. Yeah, yeah. It's reminiscent of wartime espionage and everything else. You know, as soon as you if you had that bit of key information, if you know that there's a particular word that means number one and three or whatever, um, that's brilliant. But of course, as with espionage in you know the great battles of history, you don't necessarily want to play your card you know, straight away. So you might wait for a critical moment in the match if you hear the call. Now is when we, we, you know, we use that knowledge so that we spring on the fact that we were. But I don't know if that happens. I've never been privy to any of the codes and how that all works, whether it's just a word or a coded number and how they do it. But it is fascinating, isn't it? And it does depend on secrecy and good and, and not forgetting the code, which I think the Australians did at some point in the World Cup and completely messed up um, a couple of lineouts. If it was not them, I don't want to to criticise the the unjustified, uh, you know, the wrong people. But but certainly there, you see mistakes happen uh, where presumably people forget what the code was supposed to be. Yeah, it's it's a new way of looking at sport, isn't it? The you know that there is a certain amount amidst all what seems the infinite possibilities of anything that might happen in a match. There are certain ways you can kind of narrow down where it's at, uh, what might happen. And I guess you you look at games now differently. Yeah, absolutely. It's uh, I mean, I've always loved sport, but being a numbers person, I think, has added an extra angle to it. So I like the stats. I like, like you know, seeing, you know, how they influence tactics or psychology, you know, in some sports like, you know, it's sports like cricket, the fact that you're close to getting 50 affects you mentally because you think, I don't want to, you know, I want to get this, but you're more vulnerable as a result. So, you know, the interplay between humanity and, you know, the hard fact that it's all based on numbers and scores that, you know, in the end, numbers are at the heart of it. It 
does make sport really uh, a lovely way, you know, of, of, of seeing mathematical ideas being played out in front of you. Rob Easterway, thanks so much for your return leg visit to the function room. I don't know whether this was a home or away uh, leg, but thanks a million for coming back. Uh, best of luck with your book, Head Scratchers, the new scientist uh, puzzle book. And have a great time at Maths Week, which started on the 14th of October, runs until the 22nd. Enjoy your visit to Ireland and talk to you soon. Thank you very much. That was Rob Eastaway there. He's coming over to Ireland for Maths Week. As I said, 14th to the 22nd of October. Matsweek.ie for all details. His book's called Head Scratchers. It's the new scientist puzzle book. And I guess best of luck to England in the semi-finals. And who would have seen Ireland being beaten by the All Blacks for the ninth quarterfinal in a row? Um, what were the odds, I wonder? Anyway, find uh, the Function Room Pod on Twitter at Function Room Pod. I'm Colm O'Regan. Leave us a review if you like. And see you soon for the next Function Room Podcast. Thank you. Bye bye.